You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St. John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. This episode presented by the Archbishop Philip Freer at the 150th birthday celebrations of St. John's Diamond Creek. Pray the words of my lips and the thoughts of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, we know um, that this is an important day. 150 years, uh, a lot of time passes. It is interesting that how fundamental uh, our human dilemma is. I'm sure 150 years ago, the issue of critical technology failure was not the sound system. It was probably the, the nail in the horseshoe. So if you're out trying to get around, and I looked at all the list of places from wherever it was that the, uh, the vicar of Heidelberg used to try and get around in his rounds, I reckon that occasionally there was that horseshoe nail that uh, really disrupted things. But it, it's amazing, isn't it, how despite what we um, admire as the improvement of technology and all of our things of life that we are beset with the, the imperfection of even the best world we can create. And of course, this is one of the profound things that Jesus addresses in the Gospels, one of the great issues of Christian wisdom that speaks, still speaks to our world, however perfected we are in applying our human attributes, our human gifts in such beautiful and creative ways. Jesus often used very uh, colourful language, colourful in a way of creating pictures. You know about his parables where he told stories about things are like something else, but he also used a lot of metaphorical kind of language, especially referring to himself. And he used these examples from daily life that his disciples and the many other people who heard him could easily relate to. And they could see the point of the example as soon as it was told. And today's Gospel reading we've just heard is no different. Any of us who've ever pruned a vine or a fruit tree can get the point. The branch and twig cannot exist independently of the vine. And Jesus' teaching in chapter 15 follows on from the washing of the disciples' feet. Events we now reenact on Maundy Thursday as we prepare for Easter and seem prompted by observations from Simon, Peter, Thomas, Philip and Judas after he had carried out this symbolic act. Jesus, in telling this part of the Gospel today, is responding to how they react to his washing their feet. Jesus had already revealed to them that his betrayal and death were in sight. And now in this chapter, chapter 15 of John's Gospel, he prepares the disciples for the life that they would need to live after his death. In this context, his teaching that the Father was the vine grower and that he was the true vine must have puzzled his disciples as they sought to understand the implications of the two pieces of information they had. Well, first, they had that Jesus would be betrayed and put to death. And secondly, that apart from him, they could do nothing. Two things to try and hold together. And the disciples were often in that kind of situation. 
where they had difficult ideas given to them that they could not make easy sense of at the time. And perhaps as you've read some of these things in the Bible, you think, there's some things here I don't easily make sense of holding all this together in the one place. Because, see, if they push the image of the vine and the branches to its logical conclusion, they'd surely think that the death of the vine, the death of Jesus, must be the end of the life of the branches, of their life. And this seems to be the kind of logic Simon Peter was reacting to in chapter 13 when he asked Jesus, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. You know, he was, he was confronting some of the logic of these things that they knew bits of. And the metaphor of the vine and branches is then to be understood as having its fullest meaning in the light of the resurrection. As much as Jesus had forewarned the disciples of his betrayal and death, he'd also spoken about his resurrection and enduring presence with them. The other agricultural image in chapter 12 about the grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies and then bears much fruit was also preparing the disciples for a life beyond his death. Not just a, a meagre existence, but the life in all its abundance that Jesus spoke about as we read earlier in chapter 10 of John's Gospel. John's Gospel is so rich with meaning and heavy with interrelated symbols and metaphors that each must be read and understood in connection with the other. But you can understand the plight of the disciples trying to make sense of these things all together without all of the knowledge that we have, in a way, uh, differently to what they had at the time as we read about their reactions. And as we continue through chapter 15, we hear how Jesus answers the affront of those disciples who, it says, turned back and no longer went about with him. And he told them, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. That's just a bit, bit longer in uh, John 15, in verse 16. To be grafted into Jesus' resurrection life is to be caught up in the divine plan of human redemption that's bigger than we can think about and calls us into the very life that Jesus lived and continues to live by the Spirit in each one of us. Metaphors for the organic unity of Christ and his people are not just confined to John's Gospel. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Jesus himself is the cornerstone and the only basis of the spiritual temple that starts with Jesus and the prophets and apostles of the New Testament era that he gathered. In place of the physical second temple in Jerusalem, with its rites and sacrifices, Jesus would stand alone as the mediator between God and humanity. He's the foundation stone of a spiritual temple that we are all able to be incorporated into, an organic reality where God will truly dwell. And reading again from Ephesians 2, in him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also built together spiritually 
into a dwelling place for God. And it's not hard to see the scriptural basis that the 4th century ecumenical councils of Nicaea and Constantinople in uh, the years 325 and 381 drew on when they declared the Church of Jesus Christ was one, holy, Catholic and apostolic. Something which could not follow from the defective Christology of the Arians whom they sought to correct. Because it was only in this proper understanding of what Jesus was saying in the New Testament about who he is and what kind of a, a spiritual temple he was creating in his own life and the incorporation of the Christian believers into that spiritual temple that truly uh, this unique role of Jesus in the mediation between humanity and God could really be embraced, could really be seen to be effective. And Psalm 111, that we just said earlier, makes it entirely clear that God is accessible to us in worship and that our worship should be the meeting between people in a relationship of love and trust. In the words of the psalm, God provides food for those who fear him. He's ever mindful of his covenant. God continually nurtures us. And always, even if we are forgetful, knows the enduring character of his love for us, whatever it is that uh, we construct from our own side of that relationship. Our gathering as the people of God in this holy place is characterized by joy and gladness. Such is the dynamic relationship between the believer and God in Christ that we're caught up in a living relationship with God and the Spirit. As much as the disciples are often pushed to the edge of their comprehension, they, along with the others who heard Jesus, who participated in his earthly ministry, experienced in him the combination of person, promise and power that they knew could only come from God. And we're privileged to participate in the same experience of the Father's love known through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, 150 years is a long time that far exceeds any of our human experience and memory. It's hard for us even to really uh, do much justice in our imagination to go back to a time 150 years ago. I mean, our imagination is so filled with the technology and the other things that we have, we, we can't imagine. You know, the sun goes down, there's no lights, or sun comes up, you wake up and work. You might see people accidentally, uh, you don't have much leisure, you're, you're pretty much, uh, every day is a working day, no holidays, you know, just things that we just take for granted would have been probably vastly different to people 150 years ago. But we celebrate in this anniversary the vision and achievements of people who are now long dead and for many of them quite unknown to us. A few we are fortunate enough they've left a record of their involvement but so many totally forgotten to anyone here, no idea who they were, known only to God. As in the passing of sufficient time will be true for most of us. I'm certain that those people, the pioneers who planned 
who sacrificed their financial means and built places uh, like the first church here, had a vision of God's purposes through his church that far exceeded their own needs for a place to simply shelter them as they gathered in worship. They built for the future, and so must we. Those pioneer generations left us a powerful legacy, a legacy, as we've heard, of benefaction, of generous giving, of vision for the future. And we must do the same for the generations who come after us. It's gratifying to see the commitment to the future that you, the people of this parish, have as you go about the work of sharing the gospel in the neighbourhoods and networks in which God, through his goodness, has placed you. Your work is not finished, of course. Further improvement will be called for us in every other aspect of life. But in these challenges, you will know the presence of God through the Spirit. The certainty that our Lord is with you to equip and to guide. I just came this morning through Yarrambut. I guess in time there'll be a lot more uh, closely settled areas there. And isn't it wonderful that those pioneers who set aside that pretty large piece of land have probably made a provision where there might be new church ministries that develop over time. Who can say how the future will be? Uh, for those people who lived here in the early days of the orchards and, uh, and farming kind of district, probably couldn't have imagined the sorts of intensive living that we have now and uh, bits that we think will always be like they are, probably will not. But how fortunate we have that generous legacy of people who had a big vision for a future that they uh, couldn't have imagined. From the beginning, God's concern for holy places is evident. While unencumbered by sin, Adam and Eve are fit inhabitants of God's garden. Once sin enters their lives, the garden is too holy a place because it is especially God's place for them to be in. God is too holy a presence for them to be near in the same way as before. The places where the patriarchs had visions and encounters with God became holy places that provoked holy remembrance. Even a stone could serve as a witness to the holy vocation to which God had called his people. Joshua said the stone that he'd set up under the oaks of Shechem had, in his words, heard all of the words of the Lord in Joshua 24, and as such was to witness to Israel of the covenant God had renewed amongst them and witness against them if they were unfaithful. Now, as much as it's true that God is present everywhere and can be worshipped anywhere, Moses and the people of Israel were resolute in their determination to travel into the wilderness so that God, the God of Israel, could be worshipped by them. They said it wouldn't do to worship God in Egypt. They had to go to the special place. From the holy mountain to the tabernacle containing the tablets of the law and the tent of meeting to the temple in Jerusalem, the history of salvation is focused on God who is actually present amongst his people and whose presence confers the stamp of holiness on all that the divine presence touches. I think that's a challenge for the rationalism of our modern era. It's a funny thing, I think, that uh, for people who profess 
such a supernatural belief in God and such supernatural things that are present in the Scriptures, many modern Christians are the most rational of people practically dismissing anything supernatural in the world and in their life and, uh, and increasingly inclined to dismiss the possibility that a place could be a holy place whose holiness is conferred by God. So if you're a rationalist like that, I encourage you to read the Scriptures and let the Scriptures challenge your rationalism. Because I think there is a great paradox in uh, Christians in our modern Western society where we uh, will use the language of the supernatural power of God, we'll talk about the resurrection of Jesus, other things which as concepts uh, we hold to as a matter of very strong principle, but in the actual living of our, our daily life, we um, don't seem to get it. Interesting paradox. But a holy place and a holy people who worship God is the ideal for the chosen people of God, at least as I can read it from the Scriptures. Jesus' own identification with the temple in Jerusalem from even the time of his youth set the scene for the clearest revelation of God's purpose through his Son. The continuing connections of the Jerusalem Christians with the temple and the gathering of the dispersed Christians in the houses of believers put a shape on the enduring pattern of Christian worship. A holy people who worship a holy God in a holy place. Now, our task is not new. It was the task that Jesus had entrusted to the disciples. Remember what he told them? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it is, of course, the task that we are invited to grasp afresh in our generation and in our place. And I'd like to conclude with this prayer for renewal. Lord God, you are the first and the last. Grant me a new beginning, a new desire to pray, and new resolution in setting apart the hours for speaking with you, new ambition in prayer, that it may be humbler, quieter, empty of self, and all to your glory, new vision of the light, which is beyond brightness and above joy, new listening for your counsel and command, acceptance of your will, fervor to obey it, patience and strength to suffer for it, new union and communion with your Holy Spirit, that I pray his mind and he my prayer. O Lord, who on the throne of thrones makes all things new, renew my prayer, renew me in yourself, and hold me there. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you've got any questions about this podcast, connect with us on our website, stjohnsdc.org.au, or at facebook.com slash stjohnsdc. Don't forget, you can join us live in Diamond Creek every Sunday at 9.30am and 6pm.